Thanks so much. Um, please make sure you have a Bible open. We're going to look at three chapters today. So um, it will help if you've got a Bible there to, to look at. Um, let me pray. Heavenly Father, you have spoken to us in your word. And so, Father, as we look at this part of your word today, we pray that you would um, inform our minds, that you would fill our hearts and that you would move our wills, that we might um, be pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, there's also some outlines and a transcript up the back if you would like to get hold of those. Now, I take it that most of you have heard of Murphy's Law. Um, I've got no idea who Murphy was, but basically his name gives rise to a, the basic axiom that says, if anything possibly could go wrong, it probably will. Now, you can apply that law to a whole bunch of different things. Uh, Murphy's Law of Cues, for instance, uh, would be the idea that whatever queue you find yourself standing in, the others will move quicker, okay? So for some reason, the teller that is serving at the end of your line at the post office just doesn't seem to be paying attention and all the other lines are just going straight ahead. The line of traffic that you're in is going nowhere. It's always when you're in a rush, by the way. That's another part of Murphy's Law. But as soon as you change lanes because the other lane is moving quicker, then that lane stops and the one you're in moves quicker. Have you experienced that? Absolutely. All right. It is, this is, it is truth, brothers and sisters. Um, but sometimes your life can feel like it's governed by Murphy's Law. You know, and maybe it's because you're suffering from one illness after another. Maybe it's a string of problematic relationships. Everything just breaks all around you. Uh, maybe it's prolonged unemployment with rejection after rejection. Maybe it's just some overwhelming season that you're going through of hardship and it just never seems to end. And the longer that period lasts, the more the questions will start to rise in your mind. Why does the light at the end of the tunnel always seem like it's so far away? What, what did I do to deserve this? Why does this keep happening to me? Or if you're feeling particularly bitter... Why does this never happen to them? Maybe even you might ask, has God forgotten me? Are my prayers for some positive change falling on deaf ears? And can I really trust him? This is the tyranny of despair. And the temptation can be in those circumstances to give in to bitterness, maybe give in to sin. And you rationalise it by saying, listen, my life is a drag. Integrity hasn't gotten me anywhere, has it? So I may as well just make myself feel better by doing whatever I want to do. And stuff the consequences because everything's a mess anyway. And yet it's actually times like this when clinging on to God's promises is actually most important. You know, hardship doesn't testify to God's absence but what it does do is it pushes us to reflect deeply on what it means to say that he is sovereign. And it's also when faith really starts to mean something. Well, we left Joseph last week on his way down to Egypt. And you might be thinking he might be starting to ask himself some of these questions. He's been sold into slavery by his brothers to a caravan of Ishmaelites. 
And after a short but important digression to hear about the indiscretions of his brother Judah in chapter 38, we return to Joseph again. And the man who's bought him is a guy called Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And he's a pretty important man. Now, Joseph must have been a pretty valuable looking prospect to get picked by someone so high up. Um, But he obviously recognised talent on a slave block when he saw it. But there was actually a more important reason for him ending up where he did. Because the scriptures tell us it's because the Lord, Yahweh, was with him and made everything that Joseph did a success. Have a look on the screen here. I won't read it all out, but notice I've highlighted it. But notice how many times the word Lord, all in capitals, is mentioned in verses 2 to 6. That means we're not allowed to miss the point. The Lord was present with Joseph all the way and it was the Lord who was the one who made Joseph successful. And and when Potiphar put him in charge, the Lord saw fit to bless Potiphar because of Joseph. That's how with Joseph the Lord was. And notice how complete Potiphar's trust in Joseph was. Look how many times the words everything is mentioned up there. Because of the Lord's gifting... Joseph had shown himself to be so capable and trustworthy that as far as Potiphar was concerned, anything that was left with Joseph was set and forget. He didn't need to worry about it. Have you ever worked with someone like that? Who once once daring charge? No worries. You know it's going to get done. You know it's in safe hands. Joseph was that kind of guy. Well, that's all nice, isn't it? Joseph can leave that nasty incident with his brothers behind him. And yes, he's a slave, but he's landed on his feet, hasn't he? God's made him successful and respected. That's okay. Well, no. The story is about to take a drastic turn. You see, one of the things about Joseph is that he was his mother's son. Back in chapter 29, Rachel was described using exactly the same words that he used of Joseph here in verse 6. She was so drop-dead gorgeous that Jacob said to Laban, I'll work for you for seven years for nothing if I can marry Rachel at the end of it. Well, like mother, like son, Joseph is male model material. He's a late teenaged Adonis, lean, muscly, eye candy. And he gets noticed by the boss's wife. And she doesn't mess around. Straight up, she propositions him for sex. Now, what have we learned about Joseph so far? Well, it seems that he's skillful, he's highly competent, he's trustworthy, he's careful. Well, now you can add righteous and God-fearing into the mix as well. Verse 8, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. But did you notice that bit? I tried to make it pretty obvious. After listing off the string of things he'd been entrusted to him by her husband, 
You're expecting him to say, how could I sin against Potiphar? How could I sin against my master by doing this? But he doesn't. He says, how could I do such a wicked thing against God? The God who he knows is with him. The God who sees what is done behind closed doors, even if the husband is away. And what Joseph does here is the model of integrity. And for those who struggle in this area, which let's face it, is most people at some point, it is well worth imitating what Joseph does here. He said no to sexual temptation and then he kept saying no. And he didn't get worn down by her persistence. He didn't let himself be talked into it. He didn't try to rationalise it. Wisely, he also stayed away. He did not let himself be around her and he avoided her because he knew that if he was around her, she would try it again. You know, too often, especially with the ready availability of pornography, we can capitulate and indulge lusts far too easily. The Bible tells us repeatedly to do exactly what Joseph does here and that is to flee sexual immorality. Because adultery might appear to be honey but is it in fact poison. Um, Listen to these words from Proverbs chapter 5. It says, Why, my son, be intoxicated by another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline they will die, led astray by their own great folly. It's not worth it. Another party says, can a man scoop fire into his lap and not get burned? Joseph's integrity and his faithfulness to God and to Potiphar was outstanding. But it cost him dearly. Because one day Joseph's strategy didn't work. He couldn't avoid her forever. And sure enough, a time came when Joseph came into the house at exactly the time that no one else was in there. And Potiphar's wife, where it literally seized her moment, this seeing and grabbing theme that we've seen all the way through Genesis from the garden. And she grabbed his cloak and tried to force the issue and he just pulled himself away. I don't care if you've got my cloak, I'm running. I'm out of this house, like that. And yet once more, just as it had with his brothers, lie to Jacob and selling him into slavery, Joseph's robe gets used again to deceive. Presented as false evidence of an act that never happened for the second time. You see, Potiphar's wife is humiliated, she's angry and she's vengeful. And so she calls the other servants and still holding the garment, sells the story that Joseph had tried to rape her. A lustful foreigner making sport of her. And she then sits and waits for Potiphar to come home, making sure the garment was with her, the testimony, the false testimony, sitting by her side. And then she tells him the same story. But notice that she saves some of her barbs for her husband. Look at how she starts the account in verse 17. That Hebrew slave you brought us. 
You brought him into the house, mate. I blame you. What are you going to do about it? Calls him out in front of his whole household. And that is the barb that stuck, stuck too. Look at verse 19. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying particularly, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. That's not how integrity is meant to go, is it? He does the right thing, but he goes to prison anyway. The liar won. What happened? Did the Lord go on holiday for a couple of weeks and miss what was going on with Joseph? No, God didn't go anywhere. And the writer of Genesis is eager that we realise this. He ends the chapter, you know, in exactly the same way he started it. What the Lord did for Joseph the slave, he now does for Joseph the prisoner. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. And so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. The Lord never left him. The Lord never stopped loving him and showing his loving faithfulness to him even though he was locked away. And he still managed to win the trust and favour of the jailer. But you go, well, why God? Why did you let that happen? Why have Potiphar favour him so much, only to let it all be ripped away? Why lift him up only to let him fall? What's God doing? Well, we now come to our second scene. Now, this was read to us earlier, so I'll deal with it a bit more briefly. Uh, It's some time later, in in reality it's actually many years later, that Joseph gets some cellmates. Now you remember, Pharaoh got angry with two of his officials and he threw them into the prison at Potiphar's place. And the warden placed them under Joseph's supervision. Now one of them was Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, the other his chief baker. Now we don't know why Pharaoh was angry with them. It may be that they were both on duty the day he got salmonella. Um, they both have something to do with food, so that's probably... <laughs> I've got no idea. Um, but they're there, and he was angry with them enough to throw him into prison. Well, after time passes, the two of them have dreams. The kind of dreams that you wake up feeling bothered by. Do you ever wake up feeling unsettled by a dream that you've had? Now, I don't know why, but I'm actually a really vivid dreamer. Um, I have them all the time and I often wake up going, what on earth was that all about? So I had a dream, let me tell you, it seems to be dream telling day. I had a dream just last week and I don't think you've got to be Sigmund Freud to work this one out. But anyway, where for some reason church was meeting in a different building, some distance away and when I got there, by the way, the attendance wasn't very good. (laughs) Anyway, um, so when I get there, um, everyone is waiting for it to start but I'd left my sermon at home and I didn't have time to go back and get it 
And I only had this tatty photocopy that I think mum had because she was using it to base it for her prayers, I think. It might have been something like that. And, um, and so I was rushing around behind the scenes trying to get John O'Blouse to fix something. Um, and, and then someone grabbed me and told me off in earshot of every one of you guys while you were waiting for me to come into the room. Um, and then I had to come in and preach, being all cheerful as if nothing had happened. Um, and then I woke up. And I was in a bad mood. (laughs) The the text makes it clear that the dreams of both men were not normal dreams. They weren't Dave's neurotic dreams, right? They they, they both had dreams on the same night, each dream with a meaning of its own. And both men knew that this dream was significant in some way. And so the next morning when Joseph comes in, they look like I probably looked last week in a pretty foul mood, grumpy, just bothered. And in another window into Joseph's character, we see that he's also kind-hearted. He saw, he's observant, he saw that they were dejected. And so he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? What's up, guys? Well, we both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. And then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. I mean, he just keeps hitting it out of the park. But did you notice that he tells them dreams belong to God, but then says, tell me what it is? What does that tell you? It suggests that he knows God, he knows that God is with him, and he trusts that God is going to give him the understanding of the meaning of their dream when they tell it to him. And so the chief cupbearer goes first and he dreamed of a vine that had three branches um, that budded and produced grapes in front of him and then he squeezes the grapes into a cup and then puts the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph then says, well, this is what that means. It's three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you into your position. Good news, chin up. But then Joseph seizes his moment and he adds a request and this is revealing as well, verse 14. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Literally he says, I've not done anything that they should put me in a pit. And it's the same word that he used for cistern that the brothers threw him in, in the other chapter. It's the same word. He's twice wronged and he's not forgetting it. And despite his poise and class, the injustice of it all is real and it stings. Well, a baker thinks, well, this sounds pretty good. Um, I'll tell him my dream. His dream has a three in it also. Three baskets of bread on top of his head, with the top one holding food for Pharaoh, but birds keep coming out and eating it. Again, Joseph answers. And uh, in the original language, the wording is precisely the same, all the way up until a certain point. Um, It's just got baskets instead of branches. He said, this is the interpretation. Three baskets, these are three days. In yet three days, Pharaoh will lift your head. 
Exactly what he said to the, to the cupbearer. But then comes the twist. Pharaoh will lift your head, not to restore you, but literally he will lift your head from upon you. He'll lift your head all right and there'll be a gap between it and your neck. He's going to chop your head off and stick you on a pole. We don't get told what the baker's response to this was, but I expect he didn't sleep well for the next few nights as well. And sure enough, it happens exactly as Joseph interpreted for them. Three days later, as a birthday celebration, he's, Pharaoh's throwing a birthday party um, for his servants and he lifts up the heads of the cupbearer and the baker in front of them all. One to a place of honour and one to detachment and impalement. But despite things happening precisely as Joseph said it would happen, and despite Joseph explicitly asking the cupbearer to, to help him out, as if you wouldn't remember, wow, this is just what Joseph said. No, no, the cupbearer forgot. He did not remember Joseph, he forgot him. And you know what? Forgotten is starting to sound like a pretty appropriate word right now. It's been years. He's been left to rot in prison for a crime he didn't do. And then he's forgotten again by the person he showed kindness to when he was in there, who could have done something. Success gets followed by disappointment again. And then the rule of three kicks in. Because in scene three, the pattern is flipped on its head. It's chapter 41. Two whole years pass. Two whole years. But then it's Pharaoh's turn to dream. And just like Joseph had two dreams that his family would bow down before him, and just like both the cupbearer and the baker had similar dreams on the same night, two dreams, so it is with Pharaoh. He doesn't have one dream, he has two very similar dreams. Now the first has Pharaoh standing by the Nile and seven cows, literally beautiful of appearance and fat of flesh. Now, you know cow eyes? I've heard of cow eyes and as you go, oh, is that, that's meant to be pretty. Have you looked at a cow's eyes? They're pretty good. I, I rate cow's eyes. Anyway, these ones are pretty cows, pretty fat cows coming out of the Nile to graze in the meadow and then the horror movie happens. Because after them, seven other cows come out of the Nile, literally evil of appearance and thin of flesh. And these terrifying beasts go and stand next to the nice cows. Pause. And then cannibalise them. Now, I don't know what that scene looked like in Pharaoh's mind, but I'm not surprised he woke up after it. It's horrifying. And then he dreams again, and this time it's seven dried up heads of grain that come after um, and swallow up the seven full heads of grain that preceded them. Now, I don't know how grain swallows up grain, but it's a dream and weird stuff happens in dreams. All right? But needless to say, this vivid dream freaked Pharaoh out too and he woke up only slightly relieved that it was a dream because he thought there is a significance to this. And then the scene in the prison is, is repeated, right? Pharaoh also is disturbed and when morning comes, he seeks an interpretation but can't get one, exactly like what happened in the prison. 
But it's then that his cupbearer goes, oh, yeah, that's right, my bad. Verse 9, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings, literally my sins. And he tells Pharaoh about what happened in prison, the dreams, how Joseph had interpreted them precisely as they came to pass. Well, you can tell how rattled Pharaoh was right now because of the urgency with which he summons Joseph. Joseph is literally rushed from the pit and he's shaved and he's dressed up for an audience with the most powerful man in Egypt. So from prisoner in the pit to courtier in front of Pharaoh in the blinking of an eye. But when he gets there, Joseph loses none of his grace or his poise. Remember, he's, standing, he's a prisoner standing in front of the Pharaoh of Egypt, probably the most powerful person on earth. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So standing before royalty, Joseph is humble and yet he's quite bold at the same time. Did you pick that up? Not me, God. But the word is a bit stronger than just the answer he desires. It is God will answer to the peace, to the shalom of Pharaoh. So I can give you better than just an interpretation, Pharaoh. I can give you the answer of God himself delivered to calm your anxious mind. Well, Pharaoh recounts both of his dreams again. And most of the details when you read it are the same, but we get a window into just how disturbing these dreams were because this time around the thin cows are not just evil looking, they are extremely evil looking. I've never seen such evil looking... I've never seen an evil cow, frankly, but he's never seen an evil cow in all of Egypt that looks as evil as these things. But he also tells Joseph that when the thin cows ate the fat ones, they're still scrawny at the end of it. And that's a pretty disturbing detail too, isn't it? Well, again, Joseph wastes no time. He doesn't say, I'll get back to you tomorrow. No time explaining the dreams. He just gets straight on. In fact, he says, look, it's two dreams, and it's two dreams, but it's really the same dream. The seven fat cows and healthy heads of grain are seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt. But following those will be seven years of famine that are so devastating that it will be as if the abundant years never happened. But I want you to look at these three phrases from Joseph. Verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, it is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. He said it three times. He wants Pharaoh to get this. is God. God has decided and he will do it and he will do it soon and you've got to hear that, Pharaoh. Now, that's impressive, I think. But Joseph doesn't stop at just giving the dreams interpretation. In a stunning move for someone who's just been dragged out of prison to stand before the Pharaoh, he immediately takes on the role of advisor. He's only just heard the dream himself 
but straight away he has a strategy for action in light of what God has revealed in the future. Look at verse 33 and to 36, I'll just read it to you. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming, store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Now, look, I'm only guessing, but I expect that most in the room were sitting there going, who is this guy? You know, he's something special, right? And he's not just wise, he's connected. <laughs> Look at this, um, verse 37. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. And so Pharaoh asked them, you can imagine him going, can we find anyone like this? In whom is the spirit of God? I don't need to, I don't need to shove this out on LinkedIn or something like that. This is, this is, I've got my candidate right in front of me. And it's obvious. He's connected with God. And so Joseph's meteoric rise from the pit to the palace is complete. Verse 39, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. That's like a one-upmanship from Potiphar to the jailer and now Pharaoh and he's doing the same thing but with a much bigger job description. And the man who had twice been stripped of his cloak and bound by chains of bronze is now dressed in finery and adorned with a chain of gold. And in a hint at the fulfilment of another twofold dream from a few chapters ago, people will be commanded not to make way before his chariot, but literally to kneel before his chariot. Well, the seven years of plenty and of famine come about just as God had revealed they would. Joseph puts his plan into action, gathers great volumes of grain during the plenty for distributing during the years of famine. And when the famine came, it was bad. And it was bad everywhere. But everyone was directed to Joseph and not just people in Egypt. Verse 57... All the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. And so with that last verse, we are prepared for Joseph's impending reconnection with his brothers. But we're also hearing echoes of something that we've already read in Genesis. A great promise that was given to Abraham all those years ago in chapter 12, that all nations on earth will be blessed through you through your descendant we're seeing an, a bit of an echoing of that through joseph potiphar was blessed the warden of the prison is blessed the cupbearer is blessed pharaoh is blessed egypt is blessed and now all the world will be but what i want to draw our attention to as we finish this passage is with a reminder that Although Joseph now finds himself in a position of honour and privilege, it is no trite, happy-ending, fable story of the prince and the pauper and whatever else like that. Because it's not a fable. It's the story of a person's life. 
And verse 46 tells us that Joseph was 30 when he stood in front of Pharaoh. 30. When he was 17 was when his brothers mugged him and threw him in a pit and sold him off into slavery. So for 13 years, he's been a slave and a prisoner in chains, betrayed by his family, unfairly condemned by a liar and disgracefully forgotten for 13 years. And the names of Joseph's sons reveal just how bad the experience was for him. Verse 51, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He's now probably 37 at this point in time because this is a bit later. Um, 52, the second son he named Ephraim and said, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So Manasseh shows that the pain of his family's rejection has not left him and still pained him. And Ephraim shows that Joseph considered Egypt not the place of his success, but the place of his suffering. And yet at the same time, those names reveal something else that's also very important. In all of that languishing, in all of that ill treatment and injustice, Joseph did not abandon his integrity and he did not blame God. Far from it, he actually recognised God's faithfulness to him all the way through. His presence was a comfort in Joseph's pain. And the names of his sons show that Joseph saw his elevation and saw in it the faithfulness of his God who had never left him and who turned his suffering into fruitfulness and gave him a peace that enabled him to forget his pain. The Lord was with Joseph in the highs and in the lows. And his hand was on the timing of everything, leading Joseph to be just where he needed to be, having learned the skills he needed to learn to connect with the people he needed to connect with to work the plan that God had planned for him. He wouldn't have known that through, but that's what happened. Joseph didn't know it during the time of his trials when he was feeling abandoned and forgotten in a prison cell, but God did know what he was doing. More than that, as we will see, especially next week, he was actually working his salvation and Joseph was a key part of it. I pointed out last week that in Joseph we see a pattern that leads us directly to Jesus, the suffering servant who would win the salvation of everyone who believes. What we must never forget, especially when we suffer, is that Jesus is the Lord himself, that it's God on the cross. God is not just with us when we suffer. He's been through it himself and he did it for us. And he impatiently, just think about what God's patience is like. He patiently endures a world that always rejects him that repeatedly ignores him, that forgets he exists, despite the fact that he is the one who's given us life and breath and everything else. And God has endured this even from people like you and me who love him. 
And he's endured it for century upon century upon century upon century and has never compromised his integrity and righteousness for a single moment. And he all for the hope set before him and that is seeing a multitude of people like you and me saved. When, when we suffer or when we go through, it is nothing that our God does not know. And so his presence with us is so much more the precious. And that's why I had as the second reading that passage from Revelation 7. It's one of those wonderful pictures that you get in Revelation of the great heavenly gathering. But did you notice the description of the great multitude? They're all wearing white robes because those robes were cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And every one of them, we're told, every one of them had persevered through the great trial. They're the ones who've come out the other end of the great tribulation. Tribulation means trial. That is, the trial of living for Jesus in a broken world. And every single one of them has walked through the dark tunnel. And then what do you read at the end? What is the light at the end of that tunnel? I mean, magnificent verses. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And never again will they hunger, and never again will they thirst. And the sun will not beat on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I mean, that's the end of the tunnel. And everyone who is in Christ is in that gathering. And they get to the end of the tunnel. So don't despair if the queue you're standing in seems to be going nowhere. And don't let go of your integrity. And don't doubt the love and presence of your God, regardless of how people are treating you. God knows you and he knows what he's doing. And he's been planning our salvation and working history towards it since the book of Genesis. You can trust him all the way through it, no matter how long the queue seems. And so, brothers and sisters, stay the course. Keep staying the course. There's a song that we sing, I think we sang it last week, and says, He's walked the path before us, He's walking with us still, turning tragedy to triumph, turning agony to praise. There is blessing in the battle. So take heart and stand amazed. Rejoice. Amen.